Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We're in the middle of celebrations at the moment. Well, not really. We're recording this about two weeks before, but we're getting ready for the celebration of... All Saints Saints Day. Day. I was very excited when I looked at my schedule and I realised that our publication day for this episode would be on the 1st of November. Very exciting. Though I must admit, I was even more excited when I remembered that the day after All Saints Day is All Souls Day. And that day they get to wear black in Mass. Yeah, that's definitely, that's a lot of fun. I went to a really great Latin Mass last year in the St. Kevin's Parish in Dublin and they had a blessing over an empty coffin. That is cool. Uh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> I re- I was trying to get some of my more secular friends to come just because they liked the sound of it. <laughs> I didn't quite manage it, but maybe this year. Come and see a coffin be blessed. <laughs> But you're right, they were wearing the black vestments. I think they even had the very Memento Mori skulls and and bones on them. But it was very, very cool. But without getting ahead of ourselves, let's sit for a little moment in All Saints Day. I know on this podcast we mainly talk about arts and culture, but I can't have a podcast on All Saints Day and not talk about the saints. So that's going to be the focus of our podcast today. Obviously, as you might be thinking right now, the saints is a pretty broad topic. (laughs) We did spend a while trying to specialise it. Yeah, it's it, it can be hard when you're looking at something so vast. But in some ways, isn't that kind of beautiful that like, there are so many paths to God that we've been shown and so many examples and so many witnesses? And there's such a variety of the saints that you can have a, like more than one saint's day every day. Yeah. And yet we still have to have a day just for the celebration of all the saints because we're going to forget about so many, even of the canonised ones, let alone the ones who haven't been recognised. Yeah, it's a really beautiful tradition and both Phoebe and I follow the Magnificat for our morning and evening prayers and that's really opened my eyes to seeing what all the different saints days are because obviously it's just such a natural way to follow them throughout the year. But Yeah, it's so exciting when you just open it up and it's like, oh, it's that saint's feast day today. Yeah. I always feel like my birthday is in August and I get really excited because I think there's a lot of really cool saints that have feast days in August. <laughs> yeah, there's a load coming up to the assumption. They're just one after the other. You've got Maximilian Kolbe and... But October is a pretty good month. I'm sure if you took though, I'm sure if you took any month, you would look at it and say, those are a pretty cool selection of saints. I mean, I get St. Anthony of Padua. That's pretty great. <laughs> but the angle we kind of settled on for this podcast was actually, in some ways, I think in our secular world, it can be hard to communicate what it means to have devotions to the saints. Is it some old world hangover where it's just about having pictures up in your house and saying a prayer to Saint Anthony when you've lost your car keys? Like, are Yeah, th- it can kind of seem like it's become this weird superstition that you're just like, oh, I'll light a candle to Saint Anthony. And- yeah. And like I mean, the- St. Anthony is great at finding things, don't <laughs> get me wrong. Yeah, and in our last episode that we've just posted, we were talking about the saint's well in the Song of the Sea and how it has all of these images and these tokens. And so they can form a really rich part, part of culture, but they can also become kind of tokenistic where people don't really understand them. Are they just a superstition? Do people really believe in praying to the saints? And can they have a real impact on our lives and and the lives of people in history. So what we decided to do was actually look at the practical ramifications of knowing the lives of the saints. Um, What I mean by that is to look at 
people who have become saints and how their lives were directly impacted by their devotion to saints. We're not even looking at, there's quite a few examples of people who were friends with saints and a whole group of people became yeah. saints at once. I mean, there's just a complete abundance of like clusters of saints. Yeah. Of like saints who helped other saints while on this earth, which I think is a great tribute to human friendship and that's power. Yeah. But this um, is more specifically about what it means to pass down the stories of saints and have them be kind of living witnesses in some ways because we've had to narrow it down. We're even excluding it just having a big devotion to because in some ways I think you can pray a lot to a particular saint and not necessarily see that have uh, like a very obvious corollary reaction to how you've gone on and your trajectory of your life, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of more like using the devotion or other ways of getting to know their lives and getting to know them that they can have an impact on you. Yeah, and how that can have like a springboard effect by, by knowing about this saint has led this other person to almost become a saint. So that's what we're talking about. I think, Phoebe, you've got a quote here. Yeah, about I'm going to start us off on a quote from Ronald Knox's The Beliefs of Catholics. And now this was a book that I read when I was coming into the Catholic Church, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later, because that obviously meant a lot of grappling with this very weird idea of praying to the saints. Mm -hmm. But just to tie into that, like, saint's presence to us, he talks about Catholic's relationship to the saint, that he thinks of the saints always as alive, always within hail. The great ones of this world live, but their memories fade. When their own donations die, the man becomes an idea. It is not so with the saints' lives. We conceive them fondly, the sceptics will tell, as personally intimate to us, as exercising a real influence, not as a source of mental inspiration. St. Philip Neri and St. Anthony of Padua are alive to us, no less than the little flower. Beautiful. Yeah, I love Ronald Knox. I love the way he puts so good. things. In some ways, it's very easy and safe to just say that the saints are people from history and that we can be inspired by them or we can be impressed by them and want to emulate them. Yeah, because that's obviously, that's what I would have grown up with. Yeah, exactly. Um, as a Protestant. Or even how we treat historical figures, you know, like you can really look up to people in history and say that they have a big impact. And in some ways they can. But I think when we're talking about the saints, especially from a Catholic point of view, you're talking about something that can be more like an actual friendship. And yeah, it's almost an exchange of love. Yeah. Because I think one of the things we'll talk about a little bit in this podcast is how part of why we go to the saints is because we believe that they love us. Mm -hmm. Just because they're dead doesn't mean they forget about us. They're not kind of up there in heaven, floating on a cloud, completely oblivious, oblivious to us on earth. Yeah. That we believe in the church triumphant as well as the church militant and unite those two together as one. Mm -hmm. That they are, in a sense, waiting for us. I was just reading an article talking about the extract from Hebrews where that he says this great cloud of witnesses encouraging us to run the race. That's not the exact Bible quote, but it's from Hebrews, I think, chapter 12. And he looks at how you could read that as like a cloud of witnesses. They're all standing in the, in the stands, like cheering us, but they're a bit distant. Or how you can see that as them united to us. And um, because just before that, he talks about 
them waiting for us to become perfect as one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a real powerful idea of the church as one. And those who have gone before us are still looking back and calling us on. Or like St. Therese of Lisieux, who I think we're going to talk about quite a lot, says that I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. Because the idea that heaven being perfect love, and that perfect reciprocal of love between the saint and God, and that love calls to love, so they must necessarily call for us to be united in that love that they're in. And obviously, all that they're doing is completely within the power of Christ. They're not acting separate to God. We're not praying to them because we think they can change God's mind. Yeah. But that God has given us them as a powerful intercessor for us. Yeah. The same way that we ask our friends to pray for us. We ask our friends in heaven to pray for us. And even better because they know what we need before we need it. Like, I don't know whether you've ever had this. I've occasionally found something that I hadn't even realised was lost. Like, oh, thank you. I I haven't had that, but I have this thing where I have a set of medals for various saints, which I have lost and have lost for like months. Like they've just gone missing and I never bother to look for them because I just know they turn up. And there was one time uh, when I was kind of just coming to grips with this fact that they always show up. Um, I... <laughs> there was one time when they went missing for ages. Yes. But before that, I missed them and I was really upset and I was looking everywhere and I was about to go into exams. I was doing a lot of essays and I was at the library all day and I was like, oh, I I won't have time to go looking for this. And it's in the library. Who's going to find this in the library? Because they were all together on like a little ribbon. And I got up and I went to put on my shoes the next morning and they were in my shoes. And (laughs) I I love that story. They're just in your shoes. I mean, that's got to be St. Nicholas, right? (laughs) Like I didn't have any stockings for him to hide them in but I could I couldn't believe it like I, I just don't know how they got into because they weren't even the shoes I was wearing the day before so <laughs> you were just flinging them around Rachel <laughs> yeah I love that idea that the saints have this concrete interaction with us we sort of actually started this podcast with the title more than just imaginary friends because either you can dismiss them from a secular point of view as the way that you dismiss God, which is just like this imaginary friend that you talk to and apparently makes your life better. But also that even from other denominations outside of Catholicism, there's a distance and a gap and a not a real relationship, the idea of having that between you and saints. Yeah, because we were kind of talking about this earlier and how I grappled with that idea of praying to the saints. And I kind of realised looking back that, like I saw a thing about that distance, there wasn't just a distance for the saints, it was a distance for all the dead. Yeah. That they were at peace and they were with God, but they weren't aware and active. Mm -hmm. That then the idea of heaven being concurrent with earth and them actually caring. Yeah. Like still caring and still paying attention and it not just being God paying attention. But I think as Catholics we're so used to having the idea of the angels paying attention to us and praying to Mary that they kind of all fit in together in this idea of heaven empowering us to get to heaven. It's always really stuck with me. I remember after my granny passed away I was talking to my mum about it and she said my granny has only gone to God and God is not so very far away after all Um, beautiful (laughs) but that yeah that if god is so close to us and the saints are with god how could they be that far away from us you know yeah they're with god and obviously even as like as a protestant i very much believed in god present and active and then we just 
carry that over to all of those who are with God. Yeah, exactly. And um, so... And it gives great honour to God as well. Yeah. That he has empowered his children to kind of go to his other children and look for help. Yeah, there's that real sense of a family about yeah. it, which is lovely. I think we had a couple of quotes about mm. how we can use the saints as influences on our lives. Yeah. Yeah, this is a quote from St. Anthony of Padua, talking about saints these days and why we look at their lives and how they can help us in different ways. And he says, The stonemason and the bricklayer are careful to use the measuring line to make sure the walls are straight. Can't we say that the virtuous lives of the saints are like a measuring line stretched over our souls to make sure our lives take the proper shape and measure up to their good example? Whenever then we celebrate the feast of a saint, let us look to them as giving us the pattern our lives should take. That's so beautiful, yeah. It's really helpful to think of it that way as that pattern and as that... It's the way. I think I think we'll probably come back to this a lot because it ties in with a lot of the people we're going to be talking about. But when Jesus says, I am the way, it's really interesting to see how that echoed through the ages in lots of different ways. Like, like we're saying, it's a pattern, but patterns can have their own permutations. Yeah, I think it's also beautiful that we've got such a wide range of saints mm-hmm. that you're not just stuck with one line. That obviously we have the end goal of Christ in heaven. Mm -hmm. And then we have so many plumb lines of like how different people have done it to help us actually apply that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you can just feel so lost reaching to the perfection of Mary even, let alone the perfection of Christ. Yeah. Um, But to look at the saints who have made mistakes. We had that wonderful month in the Magnificat where we had a whole month of stories of saints who had made mistakes. Mm -hmm. And looking at them, how they made mistakes and how they've recovered from them and yeah, just how much we can learn. The, this is a quote from St. Bernard of Clairvaux and he talks about some of those different examples. He says, All of us do not run with equal ardour. Some are more eager for the study of wisdom. Others concentrate on doing penance in the hope of pardon. Others again are inspired to practice the virtues by the examples of Christ's life and behaviour, while others are roused to fervour more by the memory of his passion. Is it possible for us to find examples of each kind? And then he kind of goes on to talk about, like, through the Gospels, how we see different examples of that, like Mary Magdalene. And then you can extrapolate that to all the saints. And that's kind of perfect because the saints we're going to be talking about, in some ways, not, none of their lives look particularly similar, even though they have been inspired by, you know, the preceding saints. And so it's so fascinating to see how you can take one example and manifest that in your own devotion and your own spiritual journey through these examples. So yeah, I think we're going to go on to talk about some of the specific saints that we've been ruminating on for the past little while. (laughs) Helpfully in Catholicism, when people have been inspired by a saint, they usually just take their name. So for (laughs) the rest of the podcast, we're just going to be talking about different people called Therese and Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully we'll try and be as clear as possible to not make it too confusing. But yeah, there's a whole cluster of saints 
with the name Therese or Teresa that Teresa being the Spanish version and Therese being the French version exactly we're going to be starting with Teresa of Avila and how in some ways her example sort of ricochets throughout the centuries which is such a, a cool thing and if we get a chance then we're also going to talk about a couple of saints who are inspired by Francis Xavier but we're going to start with these Teresa saints yeah. so in some ways we're not necessarily recapping their lives the Wikipedia entries are a great place <laughs> to start but obviously if you don't know a lot about these saints I mean I will say I don't necessarily always know a huge amount about the saints I have like a kind of rough familiarity with most of them especially the ones we're talking about today I'm kind of excited because like I said we picked this idea for this podcast as like this format of people who were inspired by saints and what we got was a list of saints a good few of which I have personal devotions to so that was pretty exciting um, who have been inspired by each other yes so throughout the ages it does feel like, like you said, in some ways that saints come in clusters and sometimes those are in time, but they also seem to be like across time that they have this bouncing back and forth. I have a particular devotion to St. Philomena, who we're not going to be talking about, but it was almost uncanny how many of the people whose pages I opened when I was researching this that said, and they had the parish of St. Philomena or they built a church called the St. <laughs> Philomena Church. <laughs> yeah, on that, actually... I'm going to kind of skip ahead slightly, mainly just because I've got a quote of St. Therese of Lisieux that mm-hmm. really fits that. And um, So she says, For once a soul has been captivated, she cannot run alone. The very fact of her being drawn to you herself, she draws all souls she loves after her. Amazing. That's just so beautiful. I mean, there's a reason. We've talked about St. Therese a couple of times in this podcast already, but there's a reason to keep coming back to her. It's really amazing. Yeah, that was from The Story of a Soul, which I reread in preparation. Excellent, which I have not read yet, but Phoebe's reading it enough times for me. <laughs> but I just we... made a list of quotes, you know. <laughs> she copied out the entire book. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did kind of get to a stage where I was like page numbering it, and it was like every third page. <laughs> I'm going to cut this down a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But let's start with Teresa of Avila. Obviously, for us, we've just had the Feast of uh, Teresa of Avila. I'm very lucky I go to a Carmelite church for morning mass most days a week. And so I've been able to get some of the big Carmelite feast days. But Teresa of Avila is obviously, uh, like we've been saying, such a big influence on the whole world. Um, But she forms a pattern Um, And I think it's really kind of fun and cheeky that in some ways her story began with uh, a love of the saints, but almost like a misunderstanding of how to do what we're talking about. Because when she was very young, I believe at the age of of seven. Precocious. uh, Yes. She was reading the lives of the saints and was completely enamored with these stories and just loved them. And so she convinced her brother to run away with her and go find martyrdom at the hands of the Moors. And <laughs> so this idea that she... Uh, th- I, was, I love that. Yeah, she kind of was like, well, the easiest way to get to heaven is just to be martyred. So we should just go and be martyred. <laughs> um, just like the like pressing the shortcut for that. But obviously, she didn't get very far. Her uncle found them outside the city walls and, and returned them to her, to their parents. But that, in some ways, like I said, it's sort of this misguided way of how to follow the saints it's just to literally look at what they did and say I'll do that as well Um, check apply (laughs) I think yeah that's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about in some ways Mm -hmm. that we can read these stories and think that we are called to do exactly that Mm -hmm. and then we despair yeah because like we are usually in positions where we can't do exactly that Mm -hmm. whereas we're called to 
apply that to our own lives and see what pattern that makes in our lives. Yeah, exactly. And that she really wanted to become a martyr, but that opportunity actually wasn't given to her. What she did become was a, a founder of uh, of the Order of the Discalced Carmelites. Obviously, she joined the Carmelites, but she founded the distinct Order of the Discalced Carmelites. Which just means without shoes. Yes. I love that. And she became a mystic yeah. and a philosopher and ultimately the first female doctor of the church, which is in some ways so preeminent in, in, in that position. And but... she was a really big part of the Counter-Reformation. Yeah. So like as the Reformation was spreading across Europe and she was part of that, bringing the Catholic Church itself alive again. Yeah. And that she, it's almost like she just wanted to get to the shortcut and say that like, oh, I'm done now. And God was like, actually, no, I've got loads of work for you to do while you're alive. <laughs> she lived pretty long as yeah. well, didn't she? So yeah. she did She did a lot of work. So much so that when she was dying, her last words are like, I can finally go to you. She said, my Lord, is it time to move on? Well, then may your will be done. Oh, my Lord and my spouse, the hour I have longed for has come. It is time to meet one another. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's almost like she had this whole life of waiting. And also that she had that real sense of like a really personal love with God. And I know that's not specific to her, but it's interesting how between the, the particular order she founded and the particular philosophy that she cultivated, that also that the, it, it was tied together with this really personal sense of love and like spousal love and this connection. And obviously that really ties into, as we've said, as you, I'm sure you can see it coming, the impact that she had on Thérèse of Lisieux. Yeah, St. Thérèse of Lisieux is that great saint of love in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaks a lot about the love of Christ and just like love calling to love. And that, you know, Thérèse joined the same order that Teresa of Avila yeah. founded. She refers to Teresa of Avila as our mother, St. Teresa. Yeah. And, which is just beautiful. Uh, and, and she took the name, she's of the child Jesus, because the name Teresa of Jesus was taken. But also because, actually, I was going to say that because I also have a note here which said that Teresa of Avila specifically cultivated a devotion to the infant Jesus. Which I then, didn't know that. Yeah. That's which, really cool. Which then became widespread in France and that Teresa of Lisieux then took her name as, as Sister Teresa of the Child Jesus. So, like, even in those, like, really small details. And we were saying, and it's so funny, it's almost impossible to talk about these people without continually leapfrogging yourself. <laughs> but... Uh, we're going to be talking about in a little bit Mother Teresa but who referred to these two saints as Big Teresa and Little Teresa and yeah because obviously Saint Teresa of Lisieux is the little way yeah and she kind of sees Teresa, Teresa of Avila as this big tremendous saint you know like I said the mother and the one who could do it do things the hard way yeah and even the fact that she wrote, obviously she has the interior castle, but the other really famous book that she wrote was The Way of Perfection. Yeah, which is like a book written for her sisters, the Carmelites, mm -hmm. to help them on their way. And then we have this hilarious quote of St. Therese of Lisieux, which says, I can hope to be a saint, but I must put up with myself as I am, full of imperfections, but I will find a little way to heaven, very short and direct. An elevator to take me straight to Jesus because I'm too little to climb the steep stairway of perfection. It's so interesting to me. And the fact that Teresa of Avila became a doctor of the church in, I think it was 1970. And then just 20 years later, Therese of Lisieux becomes a doctor of the church. Aww. That it does feel like this big sister, little sister moving throughout history. You yeah. Know? Therese of Lisieux 
has this ability to take the smaller path and be what she considers the smaller saint. And then Yeah, she's all about that. But that she draws her inspiration from mainly saints that have been sort of like big and almost ostentatious in their faith, you know? Yeah, she doesn't shy away from the big saints because she feels she can't be like them. Mm -hmm. She just demands their help. Yeah. Um, And so uh, to touch on another inspiration for Therese of Lisieux, one who's not named Teresa, (laughs) to make life a little bit easier for ourselves, she also was greatly devoted to Joan of Arc. I mean, there are those <laughs> incredible photos of her dressed as Joan of Arc. So cute. Which I'll actually come back to in a moment. That's it's really interesting how those photos actually had an impact on her life. But that Joan of Arc was this obviously big, important, powerful person, but in terms of the French cultural imagination, she had a really big place. And we both kind of learned when we were researching this that Joan of Arc wasn't even a saint or even a blessed when Therese of Lisieux was alive. Yeah, because I found this beautiful, in this book of poems I have of written by Saint Therese of Lisieux, there's one of a hymn for the cause of canonization of the venerable Joan of Arc. So it's interesting that she wasn't actually a saint at the time, but Therese had that instinct to feel like this was someone who she should have a devotion to. And she has this this quote about Joan of Arc. She says, In my admiration of the patriotic deeds of the heroines of France, especially of the venerable Joan of Arc, I long to do what they had done. About this time, I received what I had looked on as one of the greatest graces of my life at that age. I was not favoured with lights from heaven as I am now. Our Lord made me understand that the only true glory is that which lasts forever, and that to attain it there is no necessity to do brilliant deeds, but rather to hide from the eyes of others, and even from oneself, so that the left hand does not know what the right hand does. Then, as I reflected that I was born for great things and sought the means to attain them, it was made known to me interiorly that my personal glory would never reveal itself before the eyes of men, but that it would consist in becoming a saint. Yeah, and Saint Therese of Lisieux is all about that, of like that quest to become a saint. Mm-hmm. She's this great paradox of striving to be a saint, but being too ill, too weak, too small to emulate mm-hmm. like the great action of them but yet she has this great desire to do it which yeah. is why then she becomes a patron saint of missionaries yeah and um, because she has this great desire to save all the souls in the world and this but desire the, to serve as a missionary yeah. like that she had this in some ways i think i've mentioned it before but there's this quote i believe from robert bellman but i could be wrong which talks about god giving us talents that might lie fallow and it's not up to us to make sure that all of our talents are used throughout our life yeah she has a beautiful one kind of similar at this stage she's potentially going to be sent to east asia to the convent there he says he has given me a longing for complete exile and asked me if i were willing to drink that chalice but as soon as i reached out my hand the chalice was withdrawn that was all he had wanted my willingness was enough beautiful so again i think it's that idea of even if we feel like God has put a desire or a calling in our hearts to do something, sometimes all he's asking for is that willingness. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we can trick ourselves into thinking that we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But that if the opportunity doesn't, like, suddenly gets pushed around and something gets slammed in our face, there is also that consolation that, like you said, our talents could lie fallow in this life. Yeah, and that she, just because her health wasn't up to it doesn't mean that she in any way failed. And there's that great amazing sort of inversion that is so prevalent in Catholic thinking where she 
in letting go of ever being known in order that it, to prioritize becoming a saint. She does become a saint, but she also becomes one of the most well-known saints in the world. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. I think it's really cool. But the other way that, I mean, first of all, we kind of mentioned that Joan of Arc had this impact on her life creatively, which I think is also something that is so inspirational for, I think even for people in modern day, that not only she wrote loads of these poems, like the, the one that you mentioned, but she also wrote two plays. One is called The Mission of Joan of Arc and the other one is called Joan of Arc Accomplishing Her Mission. So that ties in exactly with the idea of mission, the idea of valiant deeds worth penning plays about. Um, yeah, and I have one of those, the, it's actually the hymn for the cause of her canonization open and it's really interesting to see the link that Trezor Olivia makes between Joan of Arc and their mission in Carmel to pray for the souls of everyone. She says, Sweet martyr, you have us. The convent doors enclose your sister, Joan. What is our role? The object of our prayer, the same as yours. We pray that God may reign in every soul. Mm, beautiful. And that idea that even though their actions are different, their intent is the same. Yeah, and I love that. I love that she looks to Joan of Arc for consolation in her own battles so that like she can look at Joan of Arc on the battlefield and then see the own battlefield within her soul. Yeah. We were actually just talking about this uh, in the previous podcast where we were saying how reading about enchanted woods doesn't make real woods less enchanted, it just makes all woods a little bit enchanted, you know? Oh, that's that beautiful. By looking to extraordinary deeds, it doesn't make our own little struggles unimportant, it just imbues them with the importance of seeing it on that big scale you know yeah and I thought that it was particularly pertinent because obviously the other thing that Saint Therese of Lisieux is really known for is this obviously she also had a, a big connection to Saint John of the Cross who was obviously very connected to Teresa of Avila so you've got that kind of connection going on but that dark night of the soul that he writes about is obviously very relevant to Therese of Lisieux's life and it was actually I was reading one article which suggested, obviously we can't actually know this for certain, but they were making the point that maybe it was slightly informed by those photos of Teresa Lisieux dressed as Joan of Arc because at the time there was this book that came out which was about famous conversions of Freemasons to Catholics. There is a particular story in it by Diana who kind of captured the imagination of the time and everyone was really obsessed with this story and very moved by it. So much so it made its way into, into the convent walls. I believe that she had referenced being inspired by Joan of Arc. And so Therese wrote a letter to her saying that I've drawn great inspiration and here's photos of me dressed as Joan of Arc and this is something that has inspired me in my life. And it turned out to be a complete fraud. It was actually a hoax and that it was Aww. it was showing how like quote unquote gullible Catholics are. And so it was a big humiliation for Therese. And someone made a slight correlation to say that maybe that's also informed this process of feeling very isolated from God that she went through near the end of her life. But that even if that is true, Joan of Arc still was a form of consolation for her. So she wrote this poem where she talks about during her trial of faith, she correlated it to the experience of Joan of Arc waiting in the dungeon before being led out to cruel oh, martyrdom. Oh, that's so cool. And it's quite a short poem, so I'll just read it out here. It says, At the bottom of a black dungeon laden with heavy chains, the cruel foreigner filled you with grief. Not one of your friends took part in your pain. Not one came forward to wipe your tears. 
Joan, in your dark prison, you seem to me more radiant, more beautiful than at your king's coronation, this heavenly reflection of eternal glory. Who then brought it upon you? It was betrayal. Ah, if the God of love in this valley of tears had not come to seek betrayal and death, suffering would hold no attraction for us. Now we love it. It is our treasure. That's beautiful. And kind of to mirror that in her talking about her own life, St. Teresa of Lisieux says, this is just before she's making her profession of vows as a nun. Mm -hmm. So she's probably about 19, like having been in the convent for a while. And she says, far from experiencing any consolation, complete aridity, desolation almost was my lot. She then talks a little bit about Christ asleep in her boat and says, I do not suppose that he will wake up until my internal retreat, but instead of making me sad, it makes me very happy. Mm. And that joy in suffering that she draws and the strength to suffer. And like that's five years before she dies. Yeah. Like, she died at 24. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's at least five years before she dies. Yeah. And she goes on to experience quite a lot of, like, interior suffering mm. that is well concealed, as well as her illness and final death from tuberculosis. I thought it was interesting that, regardless of her feelings on it, that the idea of being devoted to the saints was being sort of weaponized against people, even in that example. And yeah. How, and how wrong they are, like, how much of an impact and how... Uh, I mean, I can really see... St. Teresa of Lisieux taking that humility and going, okay, well, Joan and I are both humbled. And I think it's also interesting because her the, her suffering in that time and obviously her physical suffering with her illness also ties her back to Teresa of Avila, who famously said, Lord, either let me suffer or let me die. Uh, which really <laughs> yeah, connects but they, to... like They really reverberate off each other. You mm-hmm. can see how like steeped in that spirituality Saint Therese of Lisieux is. Yeah. And do we just want to say a quick reference to another one of Saint Therese's favourite saints, which is Saint Cecilia? Yeah, I found this while I was reading The Story of a Soul and it made me very happy. Mm-hmm. And it also I think helps us to see how the relics of saints have such an important role in our lives. Because mm-hmm. I think relics are one of the things that I've really struggled with. Mm-hmm. And that Teresa of Lisieux really sees that connection between where the saints have been, like connecting with the saints that way. Yeah, there is this great quote which she has, and it's so moving because I also love Saint Cecilia and I got to see these catacombs that they're talking about, so it's so vivid in my mind. But she says, Celine, which is her sister who followed her her into the convent, Celine and I managed to lie down together in what had once been the tomb of Saint Cecilia and to scoop up some of the earth which her sacred remains had sanctified. I had no particular devotion to her before the pilgrimage, But after I had visited the house where she was martyred and heard her called the Queen of Harmony because of the song she sang in her virginal heart to the divine spouse, it was more than devotion I felt. It was the love of friendship and she became my patroness and intimate confidant. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think it really kind of reiterates how the saints can draw near to us in a very sudden and direct way Mm -hmm. that she's not seeking Saint Cecilia, Saint Cecilia seeks her out, which is beautiful. It's interesting there in the quote that she talks about, the the song of Saint Cecilia to her divine spouse, Mm -hmm. and both Teresa of Avila, that we mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, has that great devotion to her spouse Christ, Mm -hmm. um, and that image of the Bride of Christ. 
And then St. Therese of Lisieux also talks about that and talks about preparing the gifts for her wedding day, preparing the bouquet of flowers of like little sufferings that she's offering up as a present to her bridegroom Christ. Yeah. There's a really cute invitation that she writes for her taking of the veil to the other novices that Almighty God and the Virgin Mary invite you to the spiritual marriage of their son, Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with little Teresa Martin, now Lady and Princess of the Kingdoms of the Childhood and Passion of Christ. <laughs> and, wow. and, and goes on to say that it was not possible to invite you to the wedding feast, but you will nevertheless be invited to the bride's reception tomorrow, the day of eternity. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really, really cute. I think we should move on to our next Teresa, which is Mother Teresa, who I'm sure was also had uh, drew from Teresa of Avila, but more specifically had a very close relationship to Therese of Lisieux and took her name from Therese of Lisieux. Yeah, she didn't she take Teresa because the French form Therese was already taken in her convent. Oh, I, I didn't know that, but... Um, I found that in something recently. In some ways, I love the connection of Mother Teresa and St. Therese because, as we said, St. Therese wanted to be a missionary and just through that deep longing was actually made one of the patron saints of foreign missions. It's her and St. Francis Xavier. And so the idea that then Mother Teresa goes on to be this great missionary saint that, like I was saying at the start, that you can almost have your calling fulfilled in a saint that's further down the line. (laughs) That's such a cool idea. Have your calling and then let somebody else fulfill it for you mm-hmm. while you encourage them from heaven. I was on uh, an article about the two of them and it said that St. Therese and Mother Teresa of Calcutta have been described as two mirrors who mutually reflect each other, one revealing what at first glance is not obvious to the other. Aww. Which is such a, a beautiful thing. And we've got so many examples, we're going to pull out a few, of quotes which are so closely linked to each other that show the kind of mirroring between these two saints. Yeah, I was amazed when reading the story of the soul with Mother Teresa in mind, Mm -hmm. of the number of times I went, wait, wait, hang on a second. Yeah, I have a quote from St. Therese in one of her writings to her sister, Celine, which says, Jesus wills that the salvation of souls depends on the sacrifice of our love. He is begging for souls from us. Let us make our life a continual sacrifice, a martyrdom of love, in order to console Jesus. Like, that just... Got such a, like, reflection of... That just sounds like it's Mother Teresa talking. It really does, because you've got, obviously, the famous Mother Teresa's, like, consoling the heart of... Isn't consoling the heart of Christ? Yeah. And, like, consoling his thirst for soul. Like... Echoing his thirst for souls. In fact, she has a quote which says, uh, it's again in her correspondence to Celine, which says, he has so much need of love and is so thirsty that he expects from us the drop of water that must refresh him. Ah, let us give without counting the cost. Yeah, she literally has like a whole couple of pages on the phrase, I thirst, Mm -hmm. in the story of a soul. (laughs) Yeah. And even their connection of having that sense of, losing the sense of Christ as well. Absolutely, That darkness that they have. It's so wonderful to see how the two kind of echo each other. Yeah, like that quote I read earlier, rejoicing in that aridity. Mm -hmm. And not only can you really see Mother Teresa resounding that, but you can see how... St. Therese of Lisieux almost gave her the strength to do it. I hear that story of, like, complete aridity for 40 years and wonder how. But then... If she's drawing on the strength of St. Therese of Lisieux, 
yeah. can kind of see how they mirror each other. Yeah, here's one of the, the double quotes that I, I found. So Therese Lisieux says, I love the night as much as the day. I want to spend my heaven in doing good on earth. Yes, if God answers my desires, my heaven will be spent on earth until the end of the world. And then St. Teresa of Calcutta said, If I ever become a saint, it will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. You know, there's that real kindred spirit. But that's what I mean about when Therese looked to Joan of Arc and took inspiration from her and and embodied that in her life. And now Mother Teresa took inspiration from Therese of Lisieux and embodied that in her life. But those three lives look completely different, you know? Yeah, the way I was thinking of it is that Mother Teresa is the great saint of mercy. Mm -hmm. As a missionary of charity, she acts on that impulse of mercy Mm -hmm. to the poorest of the poor. Yeah. Whereas St. Therese of Lisieux is that great saint of the mercy of God on us mm-hmm. because she really sees God's mercy to her yeah and she sees her own littleness she describes herself as like trying to imagine it could there be a soul littler than mine or like mm. more poorer than mine and less worthy yeah <laughs> so she sees her own need of mercy and throws herself entirely on that merciful love yeah as a little child would yeah because in the same way that correlates to you know, Teresa of Avila's The Way of Perfection, and then St. Therese's The Little Way, and then Mother Teresa almost has The Little Way, but put in the most extreme circumstances. Yeah. That, like, and obviously when you read of St. Therese's experience of The Little Way, it does sound very humbling and difficult. It's not, it's not that, but in some ways it's in a closed community and you're looking for it, whereas... I mean, it's about little things like offering, being splashed by a nun to Christ, not going into the gutter in, like among the very poorest of the poor. Yeah. Like, and there is a, quite a difference there. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, they can both say, so like Therese says, I'm a little brush that Jesus has chosen in order to paint his own image in the souls entrusted to my care. And then Mother Teresa says, I'm a little pencil in the hand of God who is sending a love letter to the world. And also the, the fact that both of them said that my vocation is love. I just think that's so beautiful and that, I love these saints yeah and to love without counting the cost is such a, a core principle for both of them in some ways it, it makes me understand Mother Teresa so much better to see it in light of Therese yeah because I think we don't have that many writings from Mother Teresa is that right uh, possibly not I don't I think she has some but yeah. I haven't I haven't necessarily dipped into them I think we have quite a lot of quotes and things from when she's speaking, mm-hmm. but I think we don't necessarily have that many writings. Whereas we've got so many writings of St. Therese of Lisieux mm-hmm. to kind of understand her with, which is kind of reverse way to be understanding. Yeah. But really cool. Yeah. And then we have one last Teresa. <laughs> Naturally. This time, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who is known as Edith Stein. So for the sake of this, because we are now, up to now, we've been dealing with at least, in every case, one Teresa and one Therese. But now we're talking about two Teresas. So I'm going to refer to her as Edith Stein. But obviously her saint name is St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. And how she was inspired by Teresa of Avila. So Edith Stein is one of my all-time favourite saints. And uh, just... Again, you know, we were talking about Teresa of Avila and Teresa of Lisieux and how they were these doctors of the church and Isa Stein is this towering academic and how she kind of really excelled in that field. But just to touch on exactly how Teresa of Avila inspired her. I mean, obviously she became a Carmelite, so obviously that makes sense. But... Yeah, I mean, we could pretty much look at any Carmelite and <laughs> 
But this is a quote from Bishop Barron's Catholicism book, where he's just summing up exactly the many moments in Edith Stein's conversions. Uh, he says, One night, while staying with friends outside Freiburg, Edith searched through their library, looking for something to divert her for the evening. She came upon St. Teresa of Avila's autobiography. She took the book off the shelf and stayed up all night reading it. The next morning, she put down the text and declared simply, That is the truth. What precisely impressed her about the book is impossible to say. When pressed on the matter, Edith replied, Secretum meum mihi, that is, that is my secret. It seems fair to conclude that the reading of Teresa's life was that galvanising moment, the occasion for all the strands to come together. I love that, just to be able to read a text... Mm-hmm. Put it down the following morning and go, that is the truth. Yeah. It's just so incredible. And I think it's beautiful in some ways that we don't necessarily have the details of exactly what fell in, in line for her with that. But there were some interesting parallels that I drew out So that I was looking at. So first of all, just that obviously Edith Stein is so well known for her Jewish heritage and like that ultimately led her to the concentration camp where she died. But that she has these incredible quotes because she was Jewish growing up and then became atheist and then converted to Catholicism. So she said that she only felt fully Jewish when she had converted to Catholicism. That's incredible. That she had this real sense of her Jewish identity as a Catholic. Um, But actually that Teresa of Avila, her grandfather was Jewish. And so that... I guess that there's that kind of doubling throughout time of the two of them can share this heritage that in some ways was maybe not so common to to Catholics, let's say. And again, actually, it's funny because we've touched on St. John of the Cross in some ways, maybe if we'd had more time, we'd have drawn him into more of this. But when she made her eternal profession on the 21st of April in 1938, she had the words of St. John of the Cross printed on her devotional picture, henceforth, my only vocation is to love which I mean we've heard that again and again and that also even her name because she took the name Teresa Benedict of the Cross but she said that it was as a symbol of her acceptance of suffering which not only is so prophetic like obviously she was suffering because she was breaking away from her family and from many of the things that she was originally seeking in the world but that like also that she was going to go through this incredible suffering which had already started by the time she was professing that's really cool but that like I said there's that Teresa of Avila quote, let me suffer or let me die. Yeah, and going back to um, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Lisieux had a big devotion to St. John of the Cross as yes. well. Yeah. Particularly, at one stage she said that it was the only book that reached her at a certain point. Obviously, like St. John of the Cross followed St. Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. and then those who follow St. Teresa of Avila also draw on his, her, right. his writings, like Teresa of Avila's counterpart in some yeah. ways. Exactly, because obviously we had made that connection between The Dark Night of the Soul and Therese of Lisieux, but Edith Stein wrote, a lot. she wrote a load of papers she wrote one which was called The Science of the Cross which was based on the writings of St. John of the Cross Very cool. so there's that really kind of sense of interconnectedness and then I was also just meditating on the fact that Teresa Benedict of the Cross, Edith Stein did die as a martyr and how much Teresa of Avila had hoped for that and to see that kind of fulfilment in some ways across time Yeah, even um, like Tres of Lisieux having hoped for that as well. Yeah, so I just thought that it's so beautiful to see all of those kind of interconnections and spurring on moments and like as as Bishop Barron said, that galvanising moment when you encounter a saint. And so that's our sort of bouquet of Teresa's. (laughs) 
which I think is so exciting and so beautiful to see those, those yeah. interconnections. Just to shout out that it's not just Teresa's who have this in common. I'm going to talk a little bit about two of the saints that were inspired by Francis Xavier. I think it ties in kind of nicely because obviously, like I said, Francis Xavier and Teresa Lisieux share the title of patron of the foreign missions. It's so interesting that, yeah, Teresa Lisieux was the one who never left her convent mm-hmm. and just worked through prayer. Mm-hmm. And then Francis Xavier was obviously this great missionary who travelled to the far reaches of the world. Mm-hmm. And yet, of the two of them, St. Teresa of Lisieux is the patron mm-hmm. and Francis Xavier is the co-patron. Is he? Yeah. That's... So we're, like he didn't get the full title because Teresa of Lisieux already had it. <laughs> or like, they were tossing it between them and... Yeah, like the one who got the main chunk with Teresa of Lisieux. That's crazy. I didn't even know that. But I was reading up some some of the details about him and the fact that he was the person who baptized the most amount of people since St. Paul. That's incredible. Um, it says that like his arm used to be so tired from the end of the day from baptizing. And we'll come back into that arm because like you were saying that with relics, that arm is a very important relic. But the first person I wanted to point out who was very directly inspired by Francis Xavier is St. Damien de Wooster, or he's also known as St. Damien of Molokai, who was a Belgian priest who longed to be on mission. So I have a quote here which says, St. Francis Xavier, apostle of the East had long been Damien's model. A talk by visiting missionary bishop focused his interest on Polynesia. He envied his brother Pamphile's selection for a team to serve in Hawaii, which the Sacred Hearts Fathers had reached in 1827. But when Pamphile caught typhus ministering to victims of an epidemic in Louvain, Damien entreated the head of the congregation to let him take his brother's place. And I was reading at that time, he was praying every single day to St. Francis Xavier. So he was, he hadn't actually got the qualifications at that point he shouldn't have been allowed to go but he just really wanted to be part of this mission he was also not seen as as academic he struggled a bit more academically than his brother but as this quote goes on to say this was a bold move especially since Damien was only in minor orders and not qualified permission post to everyone's astonishment permission was granted so he had this picture of Saint Francis Xavier and he prayed to it and so he got sent to Hawaii and then from there to a particular part of Hawaii which is is called Molokai and specifically this one beach where all of the lepers had been sent to because leprosy was completely decimating the indigenous people of Hawaii having been brought by James Cook and all of the European explorers <laughs> but that <laughs> they had essentially been sent there to die and they had been sent with the expectation that they would look after themselves, even though obviously with leprosy they were incredibly sick and obviously it's a really difficult position because you don't want to send people there because it's sort of You're a death. Essentially sending people to die with them. Then. Yeah. And then Father Damien, later Saint Damien, went to serve them and was this incredible witness of love. And he he started off being kind of afraid and being separated from them, but eventually he just sort of like embraced them and was treating them with his bare hands and he made their coffins and he treated their wounds and he built a church called the Church of St. Philomena. <laughs> and did he, he die of leprosy in the end? He did die yeah. of leprosy, yeah. But he was there for quite a long time before he did and he had many years of service and he's just one of my favourite saints. I really love him, but I love that idea that he was sent, that he had this idea of mission. But then the other one that I was going to say was actually someone who was equally inspired by Francis Xavier and established this sense of mission, but within his own country. So this is St. Gaspar de Buffalo, whose actual full name is Gaspar Melchor Balthazar de Buffalo. So he, oh, that's awesome. he was he was born on the Epiphany, so he got all three of those <laughs> names. So if you're looking for a great name, a good just one. name them after all of the Magi. <laughs> 
but he he went on to be the founder of the missionaries of the precious blood and he was he was an italian priest but when he was growing up his father was this is uh, like we said from that great resource the wikipedia page <laughs> his father was a failed entrepreneur who dabbled in the theater and in professional soccer before taking a position as a cook in the household of the altieri family whose palace was across from the the church of the jesu in rome because of his delicate health his pious mother had him confirmed at the age of one and a half years and as he was suffering from an incurable malady of the eyes which threatened to leave him blind, prayers were offered to St. Francis Xavier for his recovery. Through the influence of his mother, he became greatly devoted to Francis Xavier, whose relic is prominently displayed on an altar of the Jesu. In 1787, he was miraculously cured, wherefore he cherished in later life a special devotion to the great apostle of India and selected him as the special patron of the congregation which he later founded. So he founded this order called the Missionaries of the Precious Blood, which I'm not sure where they are today. Maybe they have spread out from Rome and from Italy, but whereas St. Damien went the whole way across the world, St. Gaspar really focused where he was already. And so he did all of this work with converting people and it's so fascinating. That's so cool to see it like far each home. <laughs> yeah. Someone described his sermons as like a spiritual earthquake. Wow, which, yeah, there's a tribute. Right? And he used to go into the hills and preach to the banditti who would come in crowds to lay their guns down at his feet. That's incredible. Um, and he actually got in trouble with the local authorities because they were getting loads of bribe money from the banditti and they were really upset that he was causing them trouble by having all of this... <laughs> These people convert. Stop converting the illegal bandits. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like obviously in some ways those are, you might see them as being kind of similar, but that, that they can manifest in different ways and that it can look very different to yeah, different people. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And like you said, that impact of relics on people and the kind of real impact that they can have. Yeah, that like realness of miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that you got that little fact there of um, him having run away to become a martyr as well. Yes, yeah, he also ran away to become a martyr and it didn't work, so that's it. <laughs> um, in the story of a soul, St. Teresa of Lisieux has this little bit about her sister Marie, and she says that she wouldn't let her meditate because she thought she was devout enough already. <laughs> and would, so she, she would only say her prayers. <laughs> you can kind of see how the echo of like the kids who ran off to become martyrs and her mm. other sister who is at that stage like a mother to her is like, maybe just say your prayers. <laughs> Calm down a little bit. So those are, those are our saints that we wanted to go through. I really enjoyed looking them up. Hopefully yeah. they were fun to listen to. And I just wanted to finish on Another quote of St. Therese of Lisieux, if I haven't quoted her enough already this time, because she's a beautiful quote about her siblings in heaven. Mm -hmm. And at this stage, she's actually talking about her actual siblings, mm -hmm. because four of the nine of them died in infancy. She says, I could not see why they should forget about me just because they had gone to heaven. Mm. I think that's kind of... That sums up exactly... Sums up exactly what I've been trying to say about the saints and their relationship to us. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I love it. Okay, so that's our podcast. Happy All Saints Day or happy whatever day that you're listening to it. I'm sure it's the feast day of some incredible saint. Go and find them. And to finish up, we just have our one last question. Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, I've been reading a book called The Goblin Emperor, mm -hmm. which has been a lot of fun. I can't remember who it's by off the top of my head. But it came highly recommended by Ben Conroy, who mm. has also been on this podcast, and was lent to me by Maria Connolly, who has also been on this podcast. <laughs> but to quote Ben, it's a book that the main character in it 
puts a lot of effort into making sure all of his interactions with people are really positive, even just for his own sake. Mm-hmm. That he owes it to himself to be respectful and kind, regardless of what he owes to other people. And mm. um, I think that's just a really beautiful part of the book. Yeah, that's lovely. I would say the thing that I'm enjoying at the moment, last night we had the Conroys over last night and a couple of other friends. It was so much fun. For our annual watching of one of my favourite series in the world, which is Over the Garden Wall. It's a cartoon series. There's 10 episodes. They're 10 minutes each. I know for Ireland and the UK, they're on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's the same in the US, but it's about two brothers who find themselves in the unknown, which is the woods and this kind of strange... In some ways, it's a bit reminiscent of Studio Ghibli films, but it's really a love letter to sort of Americana, that almost Southern Gothic feel to it. But it's very, very autumnal, so we watch it every autumn. It's beautiful. And I'd really, really recommend it. So that's Over the Garden Wall. And then just to round up, as always, we just want to remind you guys to share the podcast with your friends, send us in any reviews that you want. We've loved getting the reviews. Yeah. We've seen some beautiful ones, so thank you so much. Yeah, and we really appreciate anyone kind of sharing it or promoting it or doing any, anything they can. Uh, we love doing these podcasts but I'd love to have more people listening which would be wonderful but we're really really grateful for everyone listening but yes I think that's it I guess it's happy November it's a bit of a somber month but happy November to everyone listening and we'll talk to you again soon goodbye goodbye this has been Risking Enchantment music by Kevin MacLeod You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.